We're turning to 1 Samuel 4. We're going to pick it up at the second half of verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the, the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and, and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. And when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. There were two cherubim angels on top of the Ark. It's his throne. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjaminite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. And when the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town set up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what's the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. And he told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. And Eli asked, what happened, my son? And the man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. And when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she didn't respond or pay any attention. And she named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the capture 
of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Father God, we simply ask that you speak to our hearts today. We simply ask that we don't hear the preacher, we hear the Lord. Please come amongst us, be with us. By your spirit, uh, apply your word to our hearts so that we might hear, we might be changed, might go out better equipped. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, what do Christians do? What do God's people do when the word of God becomes rare in their lives? We know we read that um, earlier on. What happens? What do people do when the word of the Lord becomes rare in their lives? And today we get the answer. We know as Christians that we have the word of God, the Bible. God's authorised account of the word of God, Jesus Christ. And as it says in Hebrews, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. So God has spoken to us through his son. And yet, the word of the Lord can be functionally rare in our lives. We said that before, uh, a few weeks ago now. If we choose to not read, if we choose to not listen, if we choose to not reflect on it, if we choose to not obey it, then the word of the Lord is functionally rare in our lives. But that absence of the word of God, it kind of leaves an empty space, but it doesn't leave it empty for all that long. It gets filled with something else. And today we'll see what that something else is. And the fact that the, uh, the word of God is, is rare uh, in this story is emphasized by the fact that the account of Samuel suddenly stops. You know, you'll see if you've read on a bit. Um, we've been reading about Samuel, his history. Bang, it stops uh, for three more chapters before he returns. And so in this period, we, we kind of, it's kind of emphasized that the word of God in Israel is rare, and this is what happens when it is rare. And what happens is we get this story about the misuse of the ark of God in this word vacuum. And what's shocking in the story, I don't know which bits of the story shock you the most, um, but it's not so much what the people do when the word of God is rare. Because I think if we're honest and uh, when we uh, dig into this a bit more, we'll find that we're not that dissimilar. What is shocking is the lengths, that God, the lengths to which God will go to get his people back into a real relationship with him. Even to the extent of allowing the ark to be taken away from them. What's shocking, not so much what the people do, it's what God does. So let's try and just uh, dig in a little bit. 
In scene one, the Israelites go out to, to, to fight the Philistines. You might say, why? Um, there's a verse in, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is missing in, in the Hebrew Old Testament, which seems to suggest that the Philistines were the aggressors, and Israel are simply um, going out in response to that aggression. Philistines are technologically advanced. This is the Iron Age, and they have iron weapons. They occupy the five coastal cities. Go that way. Um, up, up the side of the, of the sea, um, in Canaan. And they're a thorn in Israel's flesh um, throughout 1 Samuel, um, going back a bit into Judges and going forward a bit into 2 Samuel. They are the constant thorn in Israel's flesh. Israelites send out their army, but they're defeated. And they come back to camp and they ask the obvious question, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? That's the obvious question, isn't it? Uh, what's in, what do you think is the answer? Why has the Lord brought defeat on them? Is it to sort of point out where they are in their relationship with God? Yeah. Absolutely. It's kind of point, it's a pointing out to them that they're wrong in their relationship with God. Um, you remember what's happening with Hophni and Phinehas, and they're um, right from the, from the top of Israel, from the, from the leaders, from Is, Eli not dealing with his sons, and his sons are abusing the, uh, um, the, the sacrificial system. And all the way down, they are, they are not right with God. Um, but they don't stop. It's interesting, isn't it, when you read it? Uh, in the same breath as they say, um, why is God not with us? Let's take the ark. And one writer says, they should, have, they should have allowed the question to hang and bother them for a while. And that's true, isn't it? If you, if you have a sense of the Lord not being with you, you should let the question hang and bother you for a while. And you should go back and talk to the Lord about it. But they don't wait for an answer. They plough on with their own bright idea. Get out the Ark of the Covenant. As we said earlier on, that's the gold-covered box it's kept in the Holy of Holies. It's the Lord's footstool. He's enthroned between the cherubim. It's two angels facing each other on the top of the ark. It's a sign of, it's like God's footstool. It's God's throne. This is where God's feet touch the earth amongst uh, the people of Israel. It has the Ten Commandments inside. It's the symbol that the Lord speaks to Israel and that he rules them through his word. And all the sacrificial system kind of builds outward from around the ark, uh, the sacrifices. It's the place, effectively, where the, the, the sacrifices are brought to. It's the place where people are reconciled with God. So it's, 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 a, it's the sign in the midst of Israel that God is there. He can be related to through sacrifice, and he rules by his word. And they think, they get out of... Get out the ark of God, this symbol of God's presence with them. Then God is bound to go with them. It is kind of inevitable. They have kind of twisted God's arm. God must go with us uh, if we take the ark out. And what's the flaw in this plan? How on earth can you take out the ark containing the Ten Commandments when you're not walking by the Ten Commandments? There's a, there's a floor, isn't there, in, in, in the plan? They take the symbol of God's presence, but God is not present with them because 
because they're acting against the very symbol of the presence. So they're using the ark like a lucky rabbit's foot. Or they're using the ark like a talisman. If we take this, God has got to be with us. Well, the Lord wants to persuade them otherwise. So the Israelites, they take the ark out of the camp. Hophni and Phinehas go with it. Um, when they get into the Israel camp, there's a great shout. There's a woohoo. Um, or, or maybe they're trying to recreate a previous victory. Maybe they just think Jericho. Yeah, you remember Jericho, ark, ark of the Lord, walk round with it in front, six days once, one day, seven times, shout, thing falls down. Trying to, do you think so? Maybe they're trying to recreate a previous victory. But what happens when God is with his people, uh, the enemies fear. And here the enemies do fear in a fashion, but actually what happens is they pull their socks up, they say to each other, be men, and, uh, and off they go. Because the Lord is, is not with them, Philistines gain courage. Rather than slink back in Israel, are routed, slaughtered. And the ark is captured and the priests are killed. So this is the point. When the word of God is rare for these people, and we're not that different, what happens first? People forget to inquire of him. When you're kind of forgetting about God anyway, forgetting about his word anyway, then it's only kind of one step further um, that when things go wrong to forget to go back to him and ask, hey, Lord, what's happened here? When the word of, a, when the word of God is rare, people rely on the symbols of the relationship. They rely on the holy objects rather than on the relationship with God through his word. Same writer says they think that to have God's furniture is to have God's power. They think that to have God's furniture is to have God's power, which of course it isn't. Or I think maybe they're trying to recreate old victories. And the Lord will allow neither of those things to happen. If you bring out the objects or symbols of the relationship, when there is not a relationship, God will allow them to be removed. If you try to recreate old victories when there is no current relationship, he will bring defeat. One writer says, Yahweh, that's the Lord, will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with him if it awakens you to the sort of God that he really is. Sobering, isn't it? Or we could put it the other way around. If we relate to the Lord through his word, there will be fruit in your life and through your life. Jesus says that to the disciples, doesn't he? It's that parable of the vine. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. You're not related, if, the, if you relate to the Lord through his word, his word remains in you, there will be fruit. And if you don't, there won't. Or we could have gone to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. This is not salvation by works. You do not get right with God through your own efforts, through stuff you do. You get right with God by trusting in what Christ has done. Period. Full stop. Justification is by grace through faith. It's the only way to get right with God. The only thing that puts you right with God. The only atoning thing in the universe through all time is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. So don't try and get right with God any other way. Okay, that's the starting point. But from then on... If the word of God is functionally rare in your lives, um, there will not be fruit. And for this reason. The word of God does not just instruct you. God does not give you his word simply to tell you what is right and what is wrong. God gives you his word to empower you. God tells you what to do. Let's get this right. God tells you what to do through his word, but he doesn't just tell you what to do, he empowers your obedience. The scriptures are the prime vehicle for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So if you don't come to God's word, it won't be simply a matter that you don't know what to do. It'll be that even the stuff that you think you know what to do, you won't have the power to do. So you have to keep coming to God's word for this relationship to be going on, for the Lord to be speaking to you, for the Lord to be growing you. But you need to be coming to his word for him to empower you. And I guarantee that if you don't, the thing will be flat and the fruit will be small. Do you get that? Word of the Lord doesn't just instruct you, it empowers you. It gives you, it doesn't just tell you what obedience is, it gives you the power to do what it says. So the Israelites have trusted in the symbols of the relationship without tending to the relationship, and they've been shown up in the most disastrous kind of way. They have the symbols of God's presence, of God's rule, uh, and of God's reconciliation, but none of those things are actually true of them at that point in time because they're not relating to him through his word. The word is present in the Ten Commandments and they must have the rest of the Lord Moses written down somewhere, but it's functionally rare. And the question really then is, what about us, isn't it? Are there objects or symbols or methods that you're trusting in that if we do this, if we do this, or if we have this, then the presence of the Lord must, must go with us. And you need to think about it. I invite you to think about it. I don't want to go into great lists. But, but I could wear a massive cross, 
round my neck. And I'm not decrying if you, if you do have cross jewellery. But I could wear a massive cross uh, round my neck. And I could have uh, uh, flames of, uh, you know, a, a T-shirt with big flames of fire on it and a picture of Pentecost. Because today is Pentecost. And I could carry the biggest study Bible with, with kind of like Holy Bible written on it. And I could walk down the street and of course I could not have God with me. Because I'm not coming to God to be reconciled through the cross because I'm not allowing his spirit to, uh, to work in me because I'm not opening the Bible. So I could carry all the symbols and, and yet the word of the Lord be functionally rare. So I think you know, you know as well as I do that to have God's furniture is not to have God's power. So we, we could chop up all the furniture um, we, we don't for reasons of respect, but it's not respect to the Lord, it's respect to the people who went before us. But, but none of those in, intrinsically carry God's power as if it's a talisman or a lucky rabbit foot. The only place where that comes is in a relationship with God. And central to a relationship with God is this functioning of his voice um, in your life through his word. So if you're coming to church, that's fantastic. It's really good to see you. It's a critical and right thing to do. But you could be coming to church and the word of God still be functionally rare in your life. Because you're coming and you're having a little nap during the sermon. um, Or or you're coming and you're not really interested in um, what the Lord might be saying. You're just coming here because it's kind of going through the motions. um, And you're going back out there. Um, and you're not really bothered in the, in the Bible, with the Bible or prayer during the rest of the week. Then the word of God is rare in your life and you're in a dangerous place. Dangerous place facing defeat. At the very least you're being self-defeating um, in your Christian walk. Dangerous, dangerous place. Because what, what, where, is the, where are the signs of this relationship with the Lord? And if there are no signs, are you really sure that when the day comes and you stand before God, he says, why, are you let, why, are you, why should I let you in? And you say, because I'm trusting, because I'm trusting Jesus. And he will say, where, where, where did that show? Where did that show? You cannot wear the Christian label and assume that the Lord, that you are right with the Lord. You cannot wear the label. You have to be in a, a, a speaking and hearing relationship with the living God. Let's pick up the rest of the story. So news of this slaughter gets back to Shiloh. The people of the town know it's bad news before they see it coming because the guy's, he's running. <laughs> he's got dust on his head and he's uh, torn his clothes. They know it's bad news coming. Eli doesn't bless him because he's blind. He's lost his sight and he has to wait for the explanation. And he gets the news, Israel are defeated, the losses are heavy, his sons are dead, the ark has been captured. And when he hears about the, cap- when he hears about the ark, he falls off his chair. 
I think I would have fallen off my chair before that point. Um, but it's only for Eli when he hears about the ark that he falls off his chair and, and dies. He is old, we are told. He's 98 and he's heavy. He's overweight. He's been partaking of that naughty fork. Do you remember the naughty fork? The kind of like um, Hophni and Phineas were uh, sending their servant to kind of poke it in the pot and get out extra food more than the priests were due. And Eli's been warned about this. Um, that you remember the, the unnamed man, do you remember the unnamed man came to him in, in, in chapter 2? He said, why do you honour your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made uh, by my people Israel. He is culpably fat. And it contributes to his death. It is the nature of sin that it goes against the grain of God's good plan. So we live in this universe which God has made. Okay, it's a God-created universe. It has a kind of grain of, of, of the way things work. And you read that in Proverbs. That's what Proverbs is all about. This is the way uh, the world works. And if you try and go against it, God doesn't need to bring any judgment upon you. You'll get, it automatically backfires on you. Sin is automatically backfiring. Sin is automatically self-defeating. And so for Eli, we don't, we don't read that the Lord struck him down. Um, it, his sin has ultimately killed him. It's culpably fat and it's killed him. If you eat too much, you're more likely to have health problems. It, it doesn't need the judgment of God to step in. It's, this is just God's everyday providence working out. If you drink too much the same, you're more likely to, to, to have health, health problems and it will come back and bite you. If you're sexually promiscuous, you're more likely to catch some very nasty diseases. It doesn't require the Lord's special intervention. That's just the Lord's everyday providence. If you get stuck on porn, you will undermine the intimacy of your marriage. You see what I mean? Sin has, has an intrinsic, automatic, self-defeating edge to it. It, it comes back and bites you. In a God-created universe, that's what we're saying. Sin has its own consequences. And that's what Proverbs is all about. News gets worse when Phineas' wife goes into labour and, uh, and, and dies. Sorry, she goes into labour and dies. When she hears the news, she goes into labour and she dies in childbirth. But not before she's named the child Ichabod, which means no glory. She says, because the ark is gone, she's a bit fixated on the ark as well, isn't she? It's interesting, isn't it? Get fixated on the symbols. Don't really, don't, it's the other way around. She's, she's fixated on the symbol. The, the ark of God is, is, has gone, so the glory has departed. No, come on, people. You've got to, you've got to realize that the glory has departed before somebody robs you of the symbols. So little churches, you know, we deal with a lot of little churches around the EFCC. They've got to realize the glory has departed before the doors shut, before somebody sells off the assets. It's not the glory has departed because the assets have gone. Assets are gone because the glory has departed. Though strange to our minds, in the midst of all this, the Lord is keeping his word. 
In the midst of all this, the Lord is actually keeping his promise. He is getting rid of an unfaithful priesthood. And he has a plan. A plan for his word to return. Samuel is on the way, though we don't see him for another couple of chapters. The Lord always has a plan for bringing his word back to his people. Okay, where does that leave us? And by that I mean us here this morning. When the word of God is rare, God's people tend to trust in objects and symbols and methods. And patterns. You know, we trust in patterns. We've got to do things this way. Or we trust in the the symbols of the relationship. We call that religious superstition. Our God is a speaking God. It is, it is his nature that he spoke everything into creation. Jesus is the word of God through whom God created everything. God, everything that exists, including you and I, exists because God spoke it into creation. Our God is a speaking God. That is how he works. At some point, I trust, in your life, he spoke to you. There must have been an initial moment where he, he spoke to you, the gospel, and it came into your life. If, if that hasn't happened, then go and seek him all the more. Come and speak to me this morning. There came a point where he spoke to you. The, the gospel word came to you and you heard him. And that initial word, you go, gosh, I'm wrong and I'm not right with God. And the word he speaks to you is, you can be right with me through the cross, through Christ. And, and you trust, you come to trust in Jesus for the, for the first time. And do you know what? In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that's, that's the equivalent of God saying, let there be light. Is what he said to you through the gospel, um, understand Jesus. So he spoke, you, he spoke you into being through creation. He speaks the gospel. So effectively, he speaks new life into you. Let there be light. Let there be life. And then he carries on speaking by his spirit through his word. But are you hearing? You have to be, if if you're an alive Christian, you have to be in a speaking and hearing relationship with God through his word. So God has spoken, 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 but are you hearing? Or are you just turning a deaf ear? Is the the word of God functionally rare in your life? Nothing really this morning could be more important than this. So let's take a moment, we'll pray. Just invite worship team to come back up. But, but we'll pray. Father God, we ask that you, simply that you speak to us this morning. I pray that you, that you have spoken to us through your word. And Lord, we, we cannot go on turning up sporadically at church and thinking it's enough. 
because actually you want to speak to us day in, day out. I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for your speaking relationship. Thank you, Lord, for speaking, speaking to me, occasionally dramatically, often not, but nevertheless you speak. And unless we want to be defeatist and defeated, Lord, we ask that we come together as a people who are speaking to you and hearing you speak. Otherwise, we're living some kind of zombie Christian life. In some kind of twilight zone. And actually, Father God, we we want joy. We want, Lord, just reading. Can I just tell you something? Just break out prayer. Just um, uh, this lovely prayer of Cranmer I was reading, strangely enough, where he basically says, Lord, will you give give me good things because I'm praying in the justification of Christ? If you come to God and pray, you know, out of your own kind of righteousness... You'd have no right to actually ask God for anything, would you? Um, but it's, I can't f- remember the prayer, but he basically says, I'm justified in Christ. Um, I'm a wicked person who's God, uh, whose sins God chooses not to count against me. And, and actually, I can pray in that righteousness. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. I can go to God and say, because you see me, Lord, and you made me as righteous as, as Jesus, can I therefore pray these big things? Can I have from you joy and blessing and a better knowledge of you? And can we please, Lord, be fruitful um, as a church? Just pray that and then we'll worship. Father God, we thank you for, for justification by faith, by grace through faith. That means as we stand before you to pray, we can pray big prayers. We don't come, we cannot come in our own righteousness. It, it, it does not suffice. So we come, Lord, praying in the righteousness of Christ and asking you for big things. We want to be a fruitful church. We want less people to face God's judgment as they did in these passages. We want to be people who who know you intimately. We want to be people whose lives are saturated with you. Please, Lord, move amongst us today and in this week. For your glory. Amen.